This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Okay, now we're getting into conversations about wet food. Uh, Rob just sent me a thing on the water pizza guy. I haven't seen the water pizza guy, but I've turned him on right now. And uh, he's, he's a guy, and he's in his kitchen. And he has a T-shirt on and some khakis, and he's got a pizza, piece of pizza. And uh, he needs to do his dishes, by the way, but he's running the pizza under the tap. And because this is the world that we live in now, this has 470,569 views. And if I hang in there another four seconds, it'll be 470,000 570 views yeah i don't he's he's eating his pizza under the tap i i don't know i i haven't i've heard though and here's the thing because we're now dog owners and we're still trying to figure out the art of being dog owners it's not that hard but there are things about it that sometimes are challenging getting your pet to eat can sometimes be challenged i I don't think that's supposed to be a thing but one of the recommendations is wet the food just put some water on the food and all of a sudden the pet will come over. I don't does water bring out the wonderful aromas of kibbled dog food? I don't even want to know what's in the kibbled dog food, nor do I want to know how they make it, but he seems to eat it after a while. It would the water do that? Does it bring it out? Wet the food. So water pizza guy? Wet the pizza. Have the pi- okay. I'm in. I don't think I'm trying the, the watered pizza and Matt didn't recommend going and and wetting your sandwich before you eat it so thank you if anybody does wet down their food for any reason uh, actually there's an uh, here's another example coney island if we want to think about more fun things july 4th usually a good time when not in a pandemic and how does takeru kobayashi and joey chestnut how do they succeed they in the hot dog eating contest the annual hot dog eating contest with the mustard belt, they wet the buns down. So you don't just eat a hot dog. They're not spending time putting ketchup on it. These guys are eating upwards of 70 hot dogs in, what, 10 minutes, 12 minutes? It's a lot. And what do they do? They take the wiener out of the bun, they soak the bun in water, and they eat it. Because if you try and eat the bun, uh, we uh, we run into issues. Okay, let's let's then ask from a swimming perspective here. I guarantee you, when Maggie McNeil agreed to speak with us on London Live today, never one time did she expect the first question she was going to be asked about food at the World Aquatic Championships and how wet it is. So, Maggie, you've got to help us out. Matt was just talking about swimming competitively. And that every time you went to eat a sandwich around lunchtime at a swim meet or anytime you got any piece of food, everything was always wet. When you get to the world, is the food still wet? No. Really? I, I figured for sure it would be. Okay, so when you hit a certain level, the food stays dry. Do they bring it out on silver platters, perhaps? No. Um, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. Um, I guess at World, they didn't really have sandwiches and like normal food. It was more like kind of around the world, which was definitely different. 
Okay, so around the world, what, they'd bring in all kinds of different types of food that you could have? Yeah, that was kind of what it was like in the cafeteria at Worlds. Oh, this is good. And you could pick anything you wanted. Yeah, it was like a buffet cafeteria style. Ooh, all right. And as much as people might be a little drippy at that point, by the time you got to the cafeteria, I imagine you're you're well dried out. Okay, so look at that. Worlds, Worlds has dry food in swimming. That's one thing we've learned today. Maggie, thanks so much for being here. How's life going? How you doing? I'm doing well, or as good as I can be, I guess, right now. I think we all are. That kind of sums it up for everybody. Now, you're still looking ahead and saying, hey, the Olympics could be coming. Congratulations, by the way, on being named. But how do you deal with the whole, well, we want to have the Olympics, but it's it's still not get out the chisel and chisel it in stone just yet. How do you deal with that? I just think it's important to not focus too much one way or the other. Um, everything's kind of changing on such a rapid basis. Um, things are changing hourly, daily. So I think it's just important to like be really flexible and adaptable and being able to change to whatever the situation is at that time. How does it affect your training? Because you always want to be at the highest height when you're competing in the big events. Where does that have you for training? Training, I guess, is pretty much the same. I mean... My focus will be trials in May and then hopefully the Olympics in July. So I feel like just getting ready to be the best I can be at those dates um, in general will, I guess, be the best way to proceed with that. Do you go to sleep thinking of the times that you're going to need at trials? Do, are those are those chiseled into your mind right now? I try not to think about too much about like specific goal times. It's more like the process and the way that I've been training leading up to something, and then definitely the technique as well. We've talked before about the whirlwind that your life became when you look at the fact that you were, you're swimming, you're swimming well. At that time, you were set to go to Michigan, and then all of a sudden, the 2019 Worlds. How is life now? Do you, do you feel like, hey, this, this is me, this is the track that I'm on? Does it feel more comfortable, more common? It definitely feels more comfortable. Um, I was just saying to my parents the other day that now that I've kind of accepted and gotten used to the world champion title, now I can kind of add Olympian to that. So that's kind of a new layer added to my swimming resume, which I'll have to come to terms with at some point as well. Um, but that still is um, surreal and hasn't totally set in yet. No doubt, no doubt. Well, we can't congratulate you enough for that because that is that's a massive one. We're talking with Maggie McNeil. Maggie, of course, is the world champion in the 100-meter butterfly going back to the 2019 World Championships. Also a graduate of Banting, so thanks for helping to put London on the map like you do. When you look at this past season at Michigan, take us through what all of that has been like. Well, I'm uh, I'm back there now, so I'm kind of currently in Ann Arbor. Um, everything's kind of proceeding, um, was proceeding as normal. Uh, as you can imagine, the restrictions are quite a bit less here in the States. Um, but now the challenge will be to coordinate my time to, like, come back to Canada and quarantine before trials. So that will be the next piece of the puzzle to kind of get in order. Because, obviously, Canadian trials take place in Canada you can't swim in another pool and say here's my time or can you 
No. So I will need to be present at trials, um, which are now at the end of May. So with that being so close to the games, um, when I return home from my two-week quarantine for trials, I will not be returning back to Michigan until probably the fall. So it's important that I kind of get everything sweated out that I need to and remember to bring all the stuff and all my clothes home um, this time since I know that I won't be back for a couple months. That's it. I love that you have that in mind right now. That you're you're even thinking down to the detail of all right. Got to bring all my stuff. Got to have my clothes. Got to have this. You know, some things get hidden back in drawers and and st- and you forget them. You you have this down. I love it. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just taking that from experience from the last lockdown last year. Um, when I left in March, I anticipated maybe one or two months being away uh, from school, but it turned out to be six. I think by the end of it. So I had left all of my summer clothes uh, here at school, so I definitely don't want to make that mistake again. Maggie McNeil joining us. London Zone as we talk about Olympic trials coming up, as we talk about competing in a pandemic. This is something that certainly is, is a little bit different. They're trying to put out frameworks for the Olympic Games. How much do you take a peek at how that story is going? Like you say, it changes minute to minute, hour to hour. Do you bother following every detail, or do you try to get try to get the synopsis maybe at the end of the week? Um, I kind of see whatever pops up on my social media, but I'm definitely trying to limit my news sources to the reliable ones of the COC and the IOC. Um, where we're getting like the most accurate information we can right now. Great plan. When you look at trials, obviously the 100 butterfly, that's that's you. I mean, that is you. What else are you planning on swimming at trials? Well, I want to do the 100 free so because I, I want to try to make the 400 free relay, and then I think I'll do the 50 free as well just for fun. Um, but I think that will be it. Do you have a favorite race where you say, I can't wait to, you know, this this is at 2.15 this afternoon. Can't wait for 2.15. Is there a race like that for you? I have to say 100 fly, I think. Um, it's not all fun and games. I mean, there's definitely a lot of nerves that go with that, but I'm always excited to do it. So overcoming nerves, everybody's going to have them in their life. You get them kind of on a world stage, so uh, who knows how big the nerves feel there but what do you do to overcome them what do you what are some of the techniques you use well I always kind of try to come back into myself and deep breathing exercises and just try not to focus too much on my competitors and what I can't control and kind of just know that I've done the training and I've done the work to get me here so I know that I can rely on that and then whatever happens in the pool I know I tried my hardest and that's all that really matters Got to keep yourself from looking around and saying, "I know who that is over there on that uh, on the, on that board. I know I know who's over there on those blocks. That kind of thing." Yeah, I think it's definitely important, especially at that level, just to kind of try to keep my head in my own lane, which I know is especially difficult sometimes. But it's definitely something I'm really trying to work on. You still loving this? You loving the way the things are going? I really am. I mean. Of course, none of us anticipated this would happen, but I think overall this is making me a better person and a better athlete, and I think the characteristics I found in myself over the last year will definitely help me um, when I enter the workforce and when my swimming career is over in life um, later on. 
Maggie, you always have such an amazing perspective on everything. So keep that, and uh, here's hoping that they can get things worked out and that we can have the Olympics to look forward to because nothing beats being able to cheer on people even from half a world away. It's a phenomenal feeling for all of us, and, and I think we'll need it by the time summer rolls around. So good luck in everything, and best of luck at trials, and uh, we'll keep tabs on what you're doing. Know that this area, and I'm sure you know it already, is cheering loudly for you no matter what you're up to. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Maggie. Thank you. That's Maggie McNeil. Maggie graduated Banting, now at Michigan, and of course, a big part of Team Canada in the pool, proving it at the World Championships, where she was going up against the reigning Olympic champion in the one hundred butterfly and this was maggie's first worlds so you are in the final first of all she made the final and then you are going up against the reigning olympic champ in sarah schustrom and maggie goes out and swims this race that sees her touch the wall first gold medal at the world's and so 100 by or butterfly 50 free and 100 meter freestyle that's what she's hoping when trials come up for the olympic games but she's been added to those trials so that's that is the next step and then it's about going out and just achieving that time that you need to achieve and here comes all of the team canada swag and a big duffel bag and here's hoping that that duffel bag and maggie mcneil and the rest of her teammates can head off to tokyo japan So we didn't get a chance to mention what has happened to the terrorist list in the country of Canada where we live. We had Bill Blair, the public safety minister, speaking. Uh, I think he might even still be speaking, but he started speaking about a half hour ago. And there are 13 groups that have now been designated as terrorist entities, and they include Proud Boys, who gain some recognition, is that the right way to say it, through U.S. President Donald Trump, who was asked about them. Uh, AWD is on this list. Adam Waffen Division is on this list. The base is on this list. So you have a lot of supremacist and neo-Nazi organizations, and they have been added to this list. So this comes out of a request basically a month ago from a number of MPs, all MPs who voted, to ask the government to put Proud Boys on the terror list. And that was following January 6th and what happened at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. So if you have a group on a list, um, it basically puts them on a watch list through the government. Um, Banks can now look to freeze their assets. People can be charged who are seen to support either materially or financially. And so that's something that has now changed under Public Safety Minister Bill Blair. So that gets you caught up on that because that kind of stuff, we don't need to stand for that. We really don't. There's, there's no need for it. We don't need to stand for it. And there's a lot of other stuff that we don't need to stand for. 
And this being Black History Month raises a lot of conversations. And we have an opportunity to talk a little bit about an event that is taking place that is actually coming up tonight. And that event is going to feature a whole lot of conversation. And in you know detailing what it is, it's looking at the future of education for black students. It's asking the question, what does it look like? So you have a number of individuals set to discuss anti-black racism. How do we put together equitable opportunities for black students? And it is available online. You can actually go to bigmarker.com. And Dr. Andrew Campbell is going to moderate it. You have Claudette Rutherford, who is a mother of three, has been a secondary school educator for 18 years. Colleen Russell Rollins, who was recently named Interim Permanent Director of the Peel District School Board, which is Canada's second largest school board. She's going to be on it. Natasha Henry, who is the President of the Ontario Black History Society. And Jacob Robinson, who's a third-year student at the University of Waterloo. And he's going to take... You know, the conversation through a someone who's been a recent student in school and how that's gone. And George McCauley, London's own, is going to be a part of the panel as well. And he, of course, is one of the McCauley boys, but has been an educator for a long time and now is with the London District Catholic School Board as their anti-racism coordinator. And we had an opportunity to talk with George about how things are going and what is you know, a tough time for a number of different reasons. And as we started off, I, I couldn't see George because we were recording it for radio, but it, it's almost like I could hear him smile and he agreed. Yeah, I'm smiling. I'm definitely smiling here. Yeah. What else can we do, right? You know, I can tell you honestly, when I would see you, this is so different from when I would see you in the gyms. You're at, the, you're at the basketball game supporting your son. Uh, we'd be do, at, at the rink, you'd be at the rink, and, you know, we'd, we'd be talking and having fun, and that, we, I miss that aspect. I just miss bumping into people and, and just, those, uh, just, just those incidental contacts you have with people, just expanding your, your, your sphere. I just, things just get so small, and we're all on an island right now. But yeah. keeping spirits up and looking, looking forward to better days. Well, let's talk about what is coming up tonight, because you're on a panel, and this should be a really amazing discussion. What exactly do you think is going to come out of tonight when we look at improving education, bettering education for black students? You know, I think at the, at the end of the day, what's going to happen is a whole lot more awareness of what's happening inside the schools. Where, where the kids are finding their holes and gaps in, in what it is they need out of the education system, right? And we found that, uh, you know, in, in the readings, you don't, um, when, you, when you take on racism and you move in a positive direction with those who are marginalized, it's not just those students who excel, it's everybody gets to move along. And that's kind of what we're going to do. We're going to open up the conversation tonight and have a, a very candid and, and um, an open conversation about where we're headed as, uh, as an education system across the country in terms of how it addresses black history and the education of its black students. Yes. You talk about holes. What would a hole be like? What is that? 
a hole would be something of a blind spot, something that a teacher is doing or something that, a, you know what, I'm going to preface it by saying educator, because when we talk about people who are actually educating the kids, we're talking everybody from the support staff, we're talking from senior admin all the way across to the custodians in the buildings. Uh, even the referees who are in, are in charge of these kids at, at some point, when we're educators, we are sometimes having gaps and blind spots, certain things that we do, certain things that we don't do that address some of the issues that are there. And one of the issues is we're getting, we're getting hung up on color versus culture. When you say black, you sometimes just think, oh, it's a black student. Maybe I have to do this. And there's no prescribed method for dealing with a black student. There are many cultures, just like you would in, in, in any other race. And race, as we do know, is, is a social construct. It's not really real. But when it comes to dealing with, with races, you know, you don't just have one crack open your binder and deal with people like this. There's, there's cultures and there's different nuances that come with those cultures that we have to look at. That's a great discussion right there because that that's is that not part of the problem where you know we we aren't really appreciating the fact that yeah we've got individuals everybody is an individual everybody comes from their own background i mean if if we could look at it that way you see it with everybody do you not absolutely it's you know it's i think it might be easier for people to see it when they see themselves in that person if you can look at that child and you can see your child or your grandchild in that person, it's easier to have that connection. It's easier to build that relationship. What we're trying, what we're endeavoring to do is allow educators to build, you know, to continue to cultivate relationships, relationships, relationships with all of the students based on more than just who you see coming into the classroom. You know, where are they coming from? What is their culture? What is their, what are, what are their backgrounds? What are they bringing into the classroom? How can we gain a greater appreciation for that so that we can teach the child as a whole? Tonight, the future of education for black students is a webinar that starts at 6.15. You can register, you can go to bigmarker.com and you can search the future of education for black students. I'll tweet out the link as well. Dr. Andrew Campbell is a part of this. Claudette Rutherford is a part of this. Colleen Russell Rollins is a part of this. So is Natasha Henry and the man we're speaking with right now, George McCauley, who is the anti-racism coordinator for the London District Catholic School Board. That's a new position at the board. How has that gone? You know, I have to say I have a lot of support. I work with um, uh, my, co my superintendent, Kathy Furlong, um, has, uh, has given me the opportunity to spread my wings and bring my ideas to the table. And we work quite well together and she's, uh, we, we've had some fantastic conversations and the ideas that we get through our brainstorming and bring to the board, uh, I just find it's, it's, very, it's a very exciting time to bring these initiatives and have them come from somebody who's in senior administration where Kathy is, you know, so this is coming from the top down and it's also coming from the students up. The students have asked for this and it's not just our racialized students, all of our students have been asking for this and to know that it's being supported from the top down and from the bottom up where the hunger is there. It's been a very, very good time and a wonderful opportunity. My learning services uh, department, the team that I've been blessed to be a part of right now, 
they just have such an energy that they bring to it and they're excited for the work and they're, they're, they're very encouraging to, to bring these new ideas to the table. So yeah, it's been very good so far. Do you set out programs yet? Are you still in the discussion stage? Where is everything at the moment? You know, what we have is a, we have a four year plan for the board at the moment is, is where we're working from. And uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a plan that would bring you through the conversations of a discussion. And I'll, I'll frame it for you like this. If we have a little time, um, if you have an issue in a relationship with a significant other, let's say, there are four words you really don't really want to hear in those conversations. We need to talk, right? And whenever you feel that you get that feeling inside your gut, you're like, Oh my gosh, what are we talking about? What are we talking about here? When that conversation comes, there has to be a place where you say what the problem is. And right now we're talking about bias. We're talking about prejudice. We're talking about discrimination. And that's the first pillar of our conversation. That's the first year of what our board's going to be focusing on. The bias, the prejudice, discrimination, just saying what the pro- what, what it is, creating that awareness. The second part of that conversation is the understanding where you talk about, Hey, the issue we're dealing with right now has kind of, brought to this right here. These are the problems that we're really talking about, how the bias begets the, um, gets the systemic racism, the systemic discrimination, and how those have been created. And that's our second year of conversation. The third year comes, it's a little bit of a tougher one to get to where we're talking about the belief. And that's when you're talking about the power and the privilege and how the bias, prejudice, systemic racism has created a system where some people are more privileged and they, they, they get served more than others. Well, they just position different in society where, you know, some people just get they're, they're, they're part of the dominant group and they get served more than some who don't. And then the final part is the action where we talk about where do we go from here? Now we can talk about equity. Now we can talk about diversity. Now we can talk about inclusion and anti-racism. Our board is choosing it to do in this way here because the action part, sometimes we put the action before those first three pillars. And it's kind of like if your partner says or your, your loved one says, hey, this is a problem. And you say, okay, what do you want me to do? Okay, I'll cook dinner every now and again. I'll, I'll, I'll cook the dinner. I did, I did the thing. There we go. And we sometimes do that by, you know, you, you get posters and you put banners and you put you know, people of color on your things and you do like Blackout Tuesday and you do these performative things that kind of show that you're trying to do something, but you haven't really spoken about what the issues are that have led to why you need to do that. And if you do those actions without going through those first three pillars, you're really going to find yourself back to where you started because you haven't changed the way you actually operate. You just change the optics of what you're doing. And that's not really what we're trying to do. We're trying to get to, and um, our director of the board, Linda Stout, she always says, we want to make this a part of our DNA. And if we can make it a part of our DNA by going through this four-year program, and after the end of the four years, the conversation's not done. We continue it and we keep moving forward with it. So that's the vision of what we're trying to do. And that's that's what we're trying to create. That's fantastic. You know, because what a, what a great, line about something being performative you know how how much do we do in our society that is performative oh i'll cook dinner then if if you're tired of cooking dinner i'll do it you're right and then what do you do the next day next day the behavior 
may go right back to the way it was. This, this is great. Yes. You, you want your partner to get to your want to, right? And anybody who's in a relationship or been in a relationship could tell you, you don't fix it by telling me what to do. You fix it by coming to the table and figuring out, okay, or if these are the issues, let me figure out what it is I can do to address them. And now you've got me to the table and now you've discovered my want to. I want to do this because I want the relationship to get better and I want things to get better in general. And that's where you want your partner to be. And that's where we want to be as a society where we all come together and figure out our want to. George, this has been a great discussion already. I can't wait to see where things go tonight again. Tonight, George is a part of a panel with Dr. Andrew Campbell and Claudette Rutherford and Colleen Russell Rollins and Natasha Henry and Jacob Robinson. And they are talking about the future of education for black students. You can go to bigmarker.com and search for it. Or again, I will tweet out the link in just a minute. George, I miss talking. I miss seeing you in the basketball gyms and watching high school basketball, but uh, we'll get there. We'll get back to that. And uh, everything you're doing right now is, uh, is so key to getting us to where we need to be in society. So thank you. Well, Mike, I'm going to thank you very much for bringing me on the show and being an advocate for what we're doing and always being a, a friend, you know, to, to, to bring us onto your show and, and shed light on what's going on here. I really appreciate the opportunity and I wish you the best of health. And uh, when things get back to some kind of normal, I'll definitely see you out there. Definitely. Keep safe. Definitely. You too. George McCauley. Isn't that outlook great? It's not, we're going to fix this. It's, here's how we can do it. And a relationship is the best way to kind of look at this and say, all right, what is, what is missing here? What is missing? And as George says, it's those four words. We need to talk to outline, all right, what, what's happening? Where are those holes that George talked about? And how do we address that? And this is not a, well, we'll get it done this semester. This is not a, we'll get it done this year. This is not a, we'll get it done in the next couple of years. This is a four-year idea and a four-year program. And he's the right guy for this job. That is for sure. That's George McCauley, who is the anti-racism coordinator with the London District Catholic School Board. And I have tweeted out that link to the webinar. If you do want to have the link and you aren't on Twitter... If you're not on Twitter, boy, you probably made a good choice somewhere in your life. I become less and less of a fan of Twitter every day, but it's one of those one of those things that in order to find information, it's useful. But the way that it works, put up an opinion. I guarantee if you if you throw out there and you say, I like green grass, someone will bury you like you wouldn't believe. What do you mean you like green grass? Who would like green grass? Brown and crackly grass is way better than green grass. That's what Twitter is these days. It's, it's ridiculous. But I have it out there. If you need it, we do have it in studio. You get to the top of the mountain, nothing like it, right? Well, you can get to the top of the mountain, and sometimes, even though the view is fantastic, you're still having a little bit of trouble with truly enjoying it and our next guest knows that sort of a feeling because melissa bernstein has felt it and at times still feels it she's at the top of the mountain she has co-created with her husband doug melissa and doug toy company 
has a really successful family life, has written a book called Lifelines. Tomorrow we'll be speaking to members of Jewish London via virtual uh, conversation. And she's somebody that, that is honestly someone who you want to know about because, hey, she has she's done it. She has been an incredible success. And she's also done it while battling mental illness, while battling depression, while battling eating disorders, while battling anxiety. And we had an opportunity to speak with Melissa about this because she's somebody who has an awful lot to throw her hands in the air about, but sometimes you just don't feel like doing that. And we started off the conversation by simply saying that it is a pleasure to be able to speak with Melissa Bernstein. It is my absolute pleasure. Well, let's talk a little bit about where some of your accomplishments began. Then we're going to get to, you know, the story that intertwines along the way as well. Starting up a toy company, that doesn't seem like a very easy thing to do. Where did this even come from? It's not an easy thing. And Doug and I always say, if we knew what we knew now, we never would have started a toy company. So, so uh, yeah, it, it's, it started, you know, gosh, I met Doug 35 years ago when I was 19 and I was still in college and we both started conventional, traditional roles that people did in that, that day, uh, never thinking, you know, we would do something entrepreneurial. But I think we were so, from the very outset of our careers, we were so miserable and really both had this sense that there had to be more. You know, we, we had to get out of bed each day and feel like we were doing something impactful and meaningful. And after about a year and a half sort of doing the conventional, we said, we are going to go away for the weekend and we are going to do something together, even though our, you know, no one would support it probably, but we would not leave this little bed and breakfast we went to until we came out of it with our plan for this entrepreneurial effort we would do together. This is brilliant. So did you have any inkling of what direction you wanted to go in as you walked through the door of that bed and breakfast? Only one. We knew we wanted it to involve children. And I know that sounds crazy, but we loved children. And basically all our parents were in educational fields. So I think from the time we were born, like we knew that if you could impact a, ch a child, you were going to make a difference. And that idea of igniting children's imaginations through something uh, really sparked us. At that time, you're going to allow yourself to no doubt think wildly about all the directions this can go. And if you get into a great brainstorming session as you're holed away in a bed and breakfast, you can think of all the exciting things. Could you have envisioned how big it has become? Never. And I think that's why it became big. Because the truth is, you know, when you think about what it might be and sort of where you want it to head, you're in your head. You know, you're, you're really not in the present making it happen. And we, all we cared about was ultimately when we decided we wanted to make products for kids is making the very best product we could. 
and touching a child with, again, that spark of insight through their imagination. And we never thought about the end result. We never thought about building this big company. We never thought about money or all those end goals. We thought about doing the right thing today, really. I mean, it sounds cliched, but the truth is we didn't care about those other things because we wanted to make sure that our products really serve their purpose of lighting kids up. <laughs> Melissa Bernstein joining us as we talk about the Melissa and Doug Toy Company. Uh, we'll talk about Lifeline. So it, it gets big and it stays big and you would think, all right, that's, that's it. That's, you were put on this earth to help kids and give them a great outlet and, and, this, and you've done it. You are at the top of the mountain. Congratulations. <laughs> and you get to walk around going, yeah, every day. But it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that for me, no. Because, you know, despite all the superficial uh, glory, and it was glory, you know, I mean, having pretty much every material thing you could ever want. Um, along the way, Doug and I had six children. Like, everything was, quote, unquote, perfect, right, from the outside. But I was really struggling and had been struggling my entire life. You know, it wasn't something that... Um, was a result of Melissa and Doug. That only, that only probably helped me to, to find my salvation. But really, I was hiding this, this deep, dark secret. And in recognizing that deep, dark secret, sometimes it's tough to do that. Did you, did you know kind of everything that it was? Did, did, you, did you have that within you, even at a, an early age, that, hey, I've, I've got something that maybe not everybody else is feeling in the same way? So I, I somehow innately knew it. And of course I felt it from the time I was born. I, I'm, I am afflicted with what I realized is now called existential depression, which is basically not triggered by anything. You're born with it. And it's this utter sense of meaninglessness as to why we're here and what the meaning of life is. That deep from age two, but because it was so deep and dark and threatened to overwhelm me truly each and every day, I basically denied, repressed, and disassociated from any feeling, any emotion, pretty much my entire life and built this facade around perfectionism and around high achievement that became who I was. So the truth is, I didn't really even though it was manifesting itself in a lot of uh, afflictions I had, like eating disorders and terrible things, I didn't connect it at all. I just, that was just survival for me. And I think it didn't connect until really just a few years ago, which is probably the craziest part of the whole story. So how did it connect just a few years ago? So basically, um, Melissa and Doug really maybe saved my life because, you know, I had always channeled this deep, dark despair into creativity innately. From the time I was a little child, I wrote music, I wrote verses in my head, and I just created order from the despair. But the problem was the creations were so dark and so desolate, I would say, that I never shared them with anyone. I really just squirreled them away, never looked at them myself, and kind of just, just channeled them 
for no purpose. And because they never touched anyone, they never gave my life meaning. So the darkness just stayed darkness. And, and I kept having these meeting crises because I didn't understand again why I was here. But when I realized through an accident forming Melissa and Doug, that I actually had this ability to take this horrible darkness and channel it into something as light and bright as toys. It was like this, I say like this, this tube had been jammed into my trachea and I finally felt what it was like to breathe fresh air because I saw for the first time that I actually had this choice, whether to channel darkness into darkness or whether to channel darkness into light. And it was actually entirely my choice. Um, it was like a water faucet. And I just turned off the dark one and I turned on the light one. And for 32 years, I created, you know, close to 10,000 toys uh, at Melissa and Doug. But despite that, and despite the fact that I was denying, repressing and disassociating from everything else, as I got older, and I think as we get older, that clamor of our soul to be seen authentically gets louder and louder. And I was repressing and denying it, but it was getting louder and louder. And there came a point when I knew I couldn't deny it any longer. Um, and what happened was I loved a particular podcast that I listened to religiously. And the host of it always talked about his favorite book, which was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I actually had this book. I had read it in my 20s. But of course, sometimes you read something, you know, three decades earlier and it does nothing for you. Uh, and it didn't do really anything for me then. But I decided to pick it up and read it again. And there was one description in it that changed my life. At the end of the book, he talks about when he gets out of the uh, concentration camp, he starts engaging in logotherapy, a form of existential ana analysis. And I was a writer. I read the thesaurus for fun as a child, but I never heard of logotherapy or existential anything. And I looked it up. And when I looked it up, that was what changed my life because the definition of it was exactly what I had experienced my entire life. So how are you doing today? I am doing as well as I could ever imagine because you know, in finally understanding that I was afflicted with something. And this something is actually very common in highly creative individuals. In fact, I almost believe it's somewhat essential uh, because in order to truly be a white space creator, creative and actually make something out of the complete boundless expanse of imagination, you have to be able to be pretty sensitive and pretty deep and imagine things that no one else can imagine. And, and, you know, I like to say discovery is seeing what everyone has seen and thinking what no one has thought. It's one of my favorite quotes. Um, and to do that, you, you have to have something, you know, something in you that makes you able to do that. And I now understand that my curse is actually my blessing. And understanding that gave a whole new meaning to my life because all these qualities that I so despised in myself and wanted to really kill my whole life because it stigmatized me and made me so different from the people I longed to emulate, they were actually the very thing that gave me the ability to create. And that has been um, such a gift. Melissa Bernstein joining us. From Melissa and Doug Toy Company, from Lifelines, and before we close out, writing your own book. 
putting it down for other people to read, putting your life out there so that at any time somebody can pick that up and, and say, okay, here's, here's an experience. What was that like? Yeah. So I think, you know, lifelines is this incredible adventure we're embarking on. And it started with the book, which really was my bid to be accepted. Every volume in the book is an aspect of myself that existed, but I had never validated. And I figured if I could do that and have the strength to be able to put that out there, maybe it would give other similar souls the courage to do so as well. And then we are building, Lifelines Now is much more than the book. It's an entire ecosystem designed for anyone who's ever felt, felt lost, stigmatized, that they don't belong, and to show them that they are not alone. And through our lifelines.com like community, we are going to really engage in discussions that no one wants to engage in. We're gonna talk about feelings that people don't talk about. We're gonna talk about ideas that people don't talk about because many of us just put on this happy exterior and pretend all is okay. When the truth is, we're all a full spectrum of emotion. We all feel jealousy. We all feel anger. We all have resentments. And the more we can allow those and accept those in each other, the more we'll accept them in ourselves. How great is that? And how has that gone? What feedback do you get from people who have been involved? You know, it only takes one for me. And I'm so happy to say that there have been a lot of ones uh, because I think, you know, I always believed I was entirely alone. My, my whole life, an existential loneliness is very real. It, it makes you feel separated, not only from yourself, but from the entire universe, that you are alone on an island and no one will ever understand you. And that is truly how I felt my whole life. But I now realize that that was the biggest fallacy ever, because the minute I actually showed myself to be the full spectrum of a person in all my darkness and in all my light, I had tons and tons of people share themselves to me as well. And I now realize that actually I'm not alone at all. I'm just utterly connected to everyone and everything. And that has been such a, a profound gift and has given my life meaning. Melissa, you continue to give gifts to the rest of us. So thank you for that. Thank you for spending some time with us. And we look forward to hearing more from you tomorrow. Keep up everything that you are doing, please. You're making this world a better place. Aww, a lot of thank you. Say that. Thank you. Please join our community. <laughs> our conversation with Melissa Bernstein. So look up lifelines.com or look up the Melissa and Doug toy company, but you can be at the top of the mountain. And at the same time, you look around and you think, I, I'm still not feeling the way that I need to be feeling. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.